KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. As the feds meet to discuss inflation, how are San Diegans coping? We see prices increasing for all of the necessity goods that people consume on a regular basis. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Some teachers need an education on racist language in class. There is a, a history uh, of anti-blackness at SDSU, but I think at this moment, uh, it's kind of reaching its, its boiling point. Good news and bad news about the Padres' upcoming season, and we explore the pandemic's impact on San Diego's performing artists. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The Federal Reserve meets today and is expected to begin raising interest rates in an attempt to bring down inflation. The high price of gas dominates the headlines, but it's not the only cost that's going up. The price of food, appliances, electricity, rent, and more are also caught in an inflationary spiral. The U.S. inflation rate has hit a 40-year high, and in already high-priced areas like San Diego, it can really take a toll on our way of life. Here's what listener Mark Ford told us. The way we've been cutting back is every way we can. We don't use we don't use any electric heat in our house. We take quicker showers. We hardly eat out anymore. It's just it's a lot cheaper to get to get groceries and bring them back and, and have a meal. The increase in the number of homeless San Diegans expected in this year's regional count can apparently be traced back to the pandemic and a skyrocketing cost of living. So what do San Diegans need to know to get by during these inflationary times? For that, we turn to my guest, Dr. Derek Robinson, Senior Researcher and Policy Analyst with the Center for Policy Initiatives. Derek, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. The cost of housing has always been an issue in San Diego. Now rents for one-bedroom apartments are well over $2,000 a month. How much of an average income here is spent on housing? Uh, When we're talking about average income spent on housing, uh, specifically in the San Diego region, uh, some recent publications have put San Diego specifically at around 37.2% of area households' budgets are being spent on housing. Uh, and that's in comparison to in the U.S. average is 33.8%. Uh, and that's very that's really in San Diego on the high end, considering that the upper limit for what's being spent, which we see in New York City, is 39.1%. So uh, in San Diego specifically, households are spending a larger portion of their incomes on housing. So when you see that many San Diegans are not making the bare minimum to remain self-sufficient, what does that tell you about how low-income individuals and families are coping? They're going to be hit the hardest uh, with these inflationary pressures as we see prices uh, increasing for all of 
the necessity goods that people consume on a regular basis with the proportion of the amounts that low-income individuals are having to spend on these areas. Sometimes they're spending upwards of 60-70% on housing. Uh, They're spending 30% on food. And really, they're trying to figure out how do I spend that other 10%. And that's where they're having to make different types of trade-offs when we're talking about having access to medical care, uh, having access to child care. And they're really grappling to make decisions about is going to this particular job really worth it for me? Has what's been called the Great Resignation got anything to do with the inflation we're seeing now? I don't believe that the Great Resignation is something that has anything to do with these inflationary pressures that we're experiencing. Workers haven't really had a Great Resignation. They've actually moved into other jobs. It's not really anyone's benefit to extract top dollar from communities and have low-paid workers, but this is the economy that businesses and capitalism have created. And when you look at the quit rates that a lot of the media is using to uh, talk about the great resignation, we have to look on the flip side of that at the hiring rates. And what we really see are that people are trying to move into better paying, better benefit, safer jobs. And so that's really kind of what we've been seeing happening there. But still at the low end of wage earners, those folks are still going to be hit with those inflationary pressures harder than someone who may be at the higher end of the income distribution or earning distribution. One of our listeners, Maddie Nelson, told us how she's dealing with the economic squeeze. So with inflation going the way it is and gas prices going the way they are, I am kind of worried about being able to make ends meet and not going into further debt. And does inflation make going into debt more or less of a problem? Definitely makes it more of a problem when you have inflation happening and you have debt happening at a household at the same time. What you're really seeing is that the prices for the goods that those households need are increasing. And oftentimes, because people are not able to make ends meet, for instance, if you're making $15 an hour, which is the current minimum wage, that's equivalent to around $31,000 a year. That's simply not enough to support a family. And so many households and many families are really kind of becoming debt dependent in order to make sure that their household resources are really met. Uh, And as we will see with interest rate hikes, that's going to make that debt service become even more increasingly expensive for those families and going to bring the squeeze to them even more. Yesterday on this show, we talked about some of the government interventions being proposed to help Californians keep up with inflated prices. One idea is a tax rebate. The other is another round of stimulus checks. Do you think either of those proposals would help? I think right now, any type of proposals could help to provide something to those who've been uh, really hit the hardest during this time, the folks at the bottom distribution of wage earners. But really what's going to help are to really put into place types of wage standards, types of other labor standards, giving working folks the ability to collectively bargain, giving workers the power that they need to be able to demand more wages and fight against that corporate greed that's really led to all what we are really seeing right now. I've been speaking with Derek Robinson, Senior Researcher and Policy Analyst with the Center for Policy Initiatives. And thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. 
SDSU philosophy professor Angelo Corlett was reassigned by the university administration after using racial slurs in class. The tenured professor was teaching a class he'd been teaching for years on race, language, and ethics. The incident was hurtful to many students and has raised questions about academic free speech, what's unacceptable, and the overall experience of being black on SDSU's campus. Dr. Adisal Kabalan is chair and associate professor of Africana Studies at SDSU and also a university senator. Professor Al Kabalan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, what have students told you happened in the classroom with Professor Corlett? Well, what they've shared with me is that it started off as a discussion about uh, language and racism and uh, racial slurs, but it would eventually descend into uh, really a situation where the professor was you know, just irresponsibly throwing the word around as a way uh, to really intimidate and inflame and agitate students. Just to be clear, what word was he throwing around? You don't have to say it. but uh, Right. He was throwing around uh, the N-word. Um, you know, is this something students have complained about before? Uh, apparently it is. And I only recently learned of this because as professors, we don't really know what other professors are doing in, in their classrooms. So I just recently heard uh, from students uh, that there's been a very, very long uh, history uh, of using that word, but not just using the word, uh, but complaints from students uh, as well. So this is not uh, new in terms of uh, the, the issues that students have had uh, with Professor Corlett uh, and that word. And students have been reluctant to speak out about this particular incident. Why is that? Well, a lot of them are not comfortable with, you know, sharing any information or stepping forward out of fear of retribution uh, from the university, uh, fairly or unfairly, but that's uh, how many of them feel. And we have to understand that, you know, these are young people who did not come to San Diego State University and in general don't come to college uh, to be revolutionaries. You know, they come to they come to learn, you know, they come, you know, as as kids, as a lot of us, you know, see them. Uh, but you know, this is not the type of thing that they uh, hope for and expect to experience in college. What can you tell me about the nature of Professor Corlett's class? And what can you tell me about him? You all have known each other for two decades. Yes, we have known each other uh, for quite some time. And uh, what I can say is that you know, his, many of his courses deal with issues of race, uh, social justice. Uh, he talks uh, about uh, reparations. So, you know, in a general sense, uh, you know, always understood that about, you know, his, his focus, his academic focus. Uh, but only recently, uh, again, ha have I learned uh, about the interaction that he's had with students for uh, a, a number of years. Uh, one of the things that he often, you know, talks about, and, or I should say, one of the things that students uh, have been coming forward and talking about is that he intentionally 
uh, tries to agitate uh, the students. And he, uh, according to them, he bullies them and he puts in his, you know, syllabus, you know, instructions for them not to share uh, his syllabus uh, or uh, they would, you know, my words, not necessarily theirs. I'm paraphrasing uh, what they said, but if they share his syllabus, you know, they will, you know, feel his wrath. Uh, so that's the kind of relationship uh, I am now beginning to understand that he has with his students. Hmm. And, you know, if this is a class on racism, language and ethics, where do you think Professor Corlett went wrong in his teaching? Well, I think he went wrong uh, when he stopped talking about, you know, the N-word uh, in, a, in an academic context. You know, in, in other words, when you're talking about race, racism, you know, racial epithets, you know, personally, I understand the use of that word in context. But I think the lesson went awry or the lesson effectively ended when he began to throw the word around uh, because he could, you know, because he told his class, he told his students that uh, he could use that word. So uh, according to them, he used it, you know, more than 40 times again, because he could. And he told the students uh, that the only way that he could be fired was if he raped or murdered a student. You know, so at that point, the, la- the lesson was effectively over and something else was happening. And this isn't the only incident Black students in particular have had to deal with on campus. What's the climate been like and for how long? Well, the climate currently is probably the racial climate is probably the worst now that I've seen in my 20 years at San Diego State. Uh, But I will say that, you know, there's often been uh, hostility uh, for Black students uh, and really faculty and staff as well uh, at San Diego State. So there is a, a history uh, of anti-Blackness at SDSU. But I think at this moment, uh, it's kind of reaching its, its boiling point. What's made the climate uh, so bad? What are students experiencing and what are our staff and faculty experiencing? Well, certainly, you know, as far as students are concerned, It's almost a it's a regular experience for their classmates uh, and others to uh, call them the N word. Uh, Only a few years ago was the the newly opened Black Resource Center um, vandalized uh, and folks were hurling the N word at students coming in and out of the Black Resource Center. Uh, or where we talk about when the library and the university rejected the John Coltrane Memorial Black Music Archive without any discussion uh, with with faculty in general, uh, but certainly not with Africana Studies or the Black uh, Resource Center, or even considering uh, how Black students would feel about the university inexplicably rejecting Uh, this music that represents uh, their culture. Uh, So there are just a number of different, you know, issues uh, right now uh, that kind of, you know, typifies the uh, Africana experience at San Diego State University. And and why did you want to share your thoughts about this? Well, our students are, are hurting. 
And by extension, I'm hurting. You know, I've seen, I see the impact that the environment is having on our students right now. I was in a meeting recently uh, with black students uh, and they were literally crying. You know, they, they're dealing with, uh, and, and many of us are, I mean, not just our students, but you know, the focus I want to be on our students are dealing with this racial battle fatigue. And as I mentioned before, they didn't come to San Diego State and we don't come to college to have those experiences, but unfortunately those are the experiences that we've been having. So that's why I'm speaking out about it. Um, you know, an organization called FIRE has gotten involved with this particular incident with Professor Corlett. They say in defense of academic free speech, what's your perspective on that organization and why they've become involved in this issue and others at SDSU? So FIRE, they focused uh, initially on the land acknowledgement. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that this land acknowledgement is about uh, uh, a, a, a people of color and a university that was making an attempt to honor the culture and traditions and existence uh, of indigenous people, particularly the Kumeyaay, on, on our campus. But because, you know, FIRE as an organization and those who support them, they don't really see us. They don't see indigenous students. They don't see, you know, black students. So the impact of their actions on, you know, black and other students of color is just simply not a concern of theirs, but rather, you know, this idea, this so-called freedom uh, of speech. So this organization has demonstrated uh, what it values. And it does not value human beings. You know, the university sent us a statement about this incident with Professor Corlett, uh, saying, in short, the university holds in highest regards all protections for academic freedom. After reviewing multiple complaints from students, the university considered the severity of the situation and the support needed for our students and reassigned the professor. What do you think of SDSU's response to all of this and its decision to reassign Dr. Corlett rather than something more severe? Well, I support the university's decision with regard to President, uh, I'm sorry, to Professor Corlett. Uh, but one of the th things that I am concerned about is that Corlett is really symptomatic of a larger problem at San Diego State. So on so many levels, it's easy to focus on, you know, one professor uh, who is problematic or, you know, behaving badly in the classroom, uh, as opposed to dealing with some of the more systemic cultural deficiencies uh, of the university. I've been speaking with SDSU Associate Professor and Chair of Africana Studies, Adisa Alkabalon. Professor Alkabalon, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places. 
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The Marines probe into whether the reservist son of former San Diego County GOP leader Tony Kavarik tried to join a white nationalist group is expected to wrap up any day now. KPBS's Amitha Sharma says top brass recently changed policies to meet the moment, but some say they fall short. We need your help. I'm talking, of course, about extremism and extremist ideology. Views and conduct that run counter to everything that we believe in, and which can actually tear at the fabric of who we are as an institution. This plea from the nation's first black Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, weeks after the January 6th insurrection, came with a request for rank and file to revisit their oath. Read those words again. Consider what they really mean. And think about the promise that you made to yourselves and to your teammates and to your fellow citizens. With nearly 15% of the January 6th insurrectionists tied to the military, the Pentagon also turned inward. Late last year, the Department of Defense updated its policy on radicalism to ban service members from actively participating in gangs or groups that advocate extremist ideologies. The active participation includes fundraising, attending rallies, recruitment, and training. What they didn't do, however, is add a prohibition of membership in white nationalist organizations. Devin Burkhardt is executive director of the Seattle-based Institute for the Research and Education on Human Rights. He says the military's decision not to ban membership in extremist groups is a mistake. The act of joining an organization and making that leap to become a member is already a sign that you're deeply enmeshed inside that organization's ranks. It also means that you may be participating in other parts of the organization. The issue surfaced in San Diego earlier this year over reports that the Marine reservist son of former local Republican Party leader Tony Kovarik tried to join a notorious neo-Nazi group. 21-year-old Victor Kovarik allegedly applied to be in the Patriot Front, which the Southern Poverty Law Center calls a white nationalist hate group. Christine Shavala, a black Navy vet who served in San Diego, says racism and extremism remain present in the military. It's masked with things like favoritism. It's masked with some manipulation in different arenas that it's definitely still there. It's just well hidden. A Marine spokesman told KPBS that the Corps is investigating Kavarik, but it's unclear if he would be in violation of the military's new policy unless he did more than just join the Patriot Front. For example, the new rules forbid service members from liking or sharing extremist posts on social media. William Braniff is director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. He says the constant presence of social media makes this change vital, but he has heard concerns. There's a lot of pushback, like, you know, this is overreach and the DOD is going to kick somebody out of the military for retweeting or reposting something. Isn't that silly? Well, no, not at all. I think what the DOD has recognized is that social media matters. However, the military is still not screening the social media of its service members, even though polling of people in the military in recent years shows roughly a third have encountered racist and white supremacist views. Again, Burkhart. 
so the problem is endemic, but when those service members go to report that, it's unclear how that is handled, you know, as to whether or not there will be clear procedures for discipline and for response. Burkhart says it's a sharp contrast with the military's policy on other conduct. Consider that proof of adultery by a service member can lead to docked pay, discharge, and even confinement. Shavala, the Navy vet, believes it will be tough to convince the military brass to take the same hard line on extremists. It's so deeply rooted into everything that they do. If they started to unravel that thread, it's going to break apart a huge structure that they've already built, causing them to have to rebuild it all over again. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. And Amitha, welcome. It's good to speak with you, Maureen. What does the probe into Victor Kovarik's activities consist of? Does Kovarik face dismissal from the Marine Corps Reserve? It's not entirely clear at this point. I imagine that the Marines evaluated the same information that was on social media and that was put there by the activists called Activated Podcast. They're actually the ones who identified Victor Kovarik as an applicant to the Patriot Front. Outside of identifying Victor Kovarik as just an applicant to the group, the Marine Corps really wants to know and is most likely investigating whether he was accepted and then whether he actively participated in the Patriot Front. If he was an active participant, then the Marines have to figure out whether he did that while he was on duty. And since he is a reservist, that's tricky. If he was active in the Patriot Front off-duty, it's uncertain whether that is a clear violation or up to the discretion of the Marines. Does the Pentagon have a list of extremist groups that military personnel are forbidden to participate in? Well, you know, Maureen, they say they don't. I find it really hard to believe that the Pentagon doesn't keep and update some sort of a list of these groups and all their iterations so that they can better identify anything really from tattoos of certain imagery or or certain language as they try to figure out if a service member has an extremist problem. Are extremist groups actively targeting military members for recruitment? Yes, they are and they do it online. In fact, one analyst I spoke with said there is not an online space where white supremacists and far-right recruitment is not happening. They say it's happening on internet forums about weapons, uh, political forums, discussions on Facebook about cars, um, forums on TikTok, and of course it's happening in the expected places like obscure social media platforms. The names are Gab and Parler. The recruitment, I'm told, is taking place in physical spaces, too. And that means that folks are going out there and they are just blanketing areas near bases with flyers and stickers promoting propaganda. And there is another aspect to this that I want to mention. On the one hand, these white nationalists are trying to recruit active service members. But at the same time, these groups are sending members to join the military, to get training and to get technical skills that these organizations could never, ever afford to pay on their own. And 
The experts I spoke with said they want their members to have these skills so that once they get out, they can do damage. They can inflict terror. Can you explain the military's thinking on why liking or sharing extremist posts online is banned, but actually joining an extremist group isn't? The military's rationale, according to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby, is that they are trying extremely hard to preserve the line between thoughts and actions. And what they say is that this new definition maintains a service member's right of expression to the extent possible, while also balancing the need for order and discipline so that combat and and unit cohesion is not affected. But I really think it comes down to this. Liking and sharing a tweet is a public act of ideological kinship with these groups, and that is not a good look for the military. Now, Top Brass also believes that with their ban on active participation in these groups, which boils down to fundraising, uh, promotion, participating in rallies and recruitment, they believe that if they ban those activities, they are pretty much handicapping these folks from being a member of these groups. But experts say that is absolutely not true, that there are other ways to participate behind the scenes. And that if you are at the point where you're even joining one of these groups, you need to be dealt with. Tell us more about the pushback these new rules against extremist social media exchanges are getting. Do some claim that this is a violation of service members' personal political views? I think that there is a genuine concern and fear among service members and leadership that the rules should not go too far in chilling the speech of people, especially on the conservative side. I think at the same time, there is worry that the military is just sticking its head in the sand and not confronting what it knows to be a real problem of white nationalism in the military and that it's dancing around the edges instead of outright banning membership in these groups. So is there a sense that the military's rules and regulations on extremist participation are still evolving as they become more aware of the extent of the problem? I think that's the hope. Well, definitely that's the hope. Some of the people I interviewed basically said, look, the military is this giant bureaucracy and tackling a challenge this deeply rooted will take time. Uh, but then again, the counter argument is that the military doesn't have time. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. After a contentious lockout that delayed the upcoming MLB season, Padres baseball is gearing up for the spring. And while fans and players alike are breathing a sigh of relief that the season is no longer in jeopardy, the news isn't all good. The Padres preseason was thrown a major curveball with the news that the team's superstar, Fernando Tatis Jr., will likely undergo surgery to repair a broken wrist. So what does that bode for the upcoming season? Here to answer those questions and more is Bryce Miller, a sports columnist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Bryce, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with this lockout. For those unaware, how did it finally come to a resolution? I think it came to a resolution because the season games themselves were in jeopardy. I think a lot of public pressure 
The reason it took so long to come to an agreement, essentially they're reshaping a new collective bargaining agreement because so many of these delays and false deadlines and a lot of the leveraging that happens in these business uh, moments in baseball is all about creating an advantage through that leverage and, and both sides uh, especially in my opinion, ownership pushed it as, as far as they possibly could. Two or three times they mentioned uh, arbitrary deadlines. Uh, you know, if we don't have a deal by this day, we won't be able to play a full 162 game season. Three or four of those deadlines came and went. So that obviously wasn't the case since they're still playing 162. But beyond the business of baseball, um, the resolution did find a way to condense the spring training schedule, make up some of those games with doubleheaders during the regular season, and we're back to 162. And the big news as of late is Fernando Tatis's injury. How bad is it? Well, it's bad from a from a confidence standpoint, from a momentum at the start of the season standpoint, from a second season collapse last year after a decent start, uh, taking them out of contention for a playoff spot that was virtually guaranteed months earlier standpoint. Um, the injury itself is, is the left wrist of Fernando Tatis Jr., but it's almost certainly going to require surgery, especially since uh, it wasn't mended in any way during the months of the lockout that, that go back to December. Um, he has admitted that the Padres are aware that he was in a motorcycle accident in the Dominican Republic uh, shortly after the lockout started. Um, so, you know, at that point, teams can't have communications with players. I mean, it's a complete separation of church and state and in baseball terms. Um, but we found out yesterday, our, our reporter at the Union Tribune, Kevin Acey, reported that um, because the Padres team doctors are not technically employees, they could have reached out, um, visited him, tried to just double check his health, even though uh, representatives from Tatis's camp said it was scrapes and bruises in that accident, nothing major. Um, but if they had identified that earlier and there was a path to do that, uh, the surgery could have happened earlier, the healing could have started sooner. And maybe he's missing a very short part of the early season as opposed to something now that could reach into mid-June. Does this injury, you think, raise questions about his longevity and overall health? I think it's fair to ask that question because he missed, um, I think, 22 games last season because of a shoulder injury. Uh, something he opted not to address surgically, and, and that's a real question mark. You know, that's that's one that he he probably could be in a better position health-wise with that shoulder. So it's the compound impact of the wrist, the shoulder. A few seasons back, he had a hamstring, a back. Um, I calculated it up in the column that ran in the Union Tribune today that uh, in a short season, his numbers have been spectacular, but he's also missed almost 30% of his games in his career because of a range of injuries. So that's one of the question marks. If this is an accident, uh, you know, if it relates to the motorcycle accident in particular, which it's hard not to believe that's not the root cause of this. It's one of those things, you know, that can happen. But what that creates is a different question. What's his responsibility related to a $340 million 14-year contract? What kind of decision make decision making is going on in his head? Is this one of those maturity learning moments? General Manager A.J. Preller kind of hinted yesterday, used the word responsibility in terms of discussions they've had with Fernando. So all of that the health and decision-making are, are, are questions early on that everybody's talking about giving the, the size of that, you know, immense investment by the Padres. How do the Padres stack up against its divisional competition this year? Well, they didn't stack up very well last year. The Giants especially were on record pace in terms of regular season wins. 
They were consistent all season long. When they had injuries, the Padres did too, but I, I wrote about this last year that Giants and Dodgers were not that far behind. The difference was they played through injuries, uh, had deeper benches in terms of uh, substitutions that could perform. Uh, and this year that both teams have, you know, are going out and likely to spend big money. The big rumor with the Dodgers, they might get Freddie Freeman, the all-star first baseman who won a World Series last year from the Atlanta Braves. They would be incredibly stacked if they had Freeman. The Giants picked up a pitcher. So far, the Padres haven't done anything in free agency in spring training. It, it would be shocking if they don't do anything. It's There's probably moves to come. But some of the biggest free agents are off the board in the last 24 hours, Nelson Cruz, or 48 hours, Nelson Cruz being one, Matt, Matt Olson in a trade, which could have been a target for A's, former A's manager, Bob Melvin of the Padres. So far, they are head on paper and they're head in terms of aggressiveness in this free agent market so far. I've been speaking with Bryce Miller, a sports columnist for the San Diego Union Tribune. Bryce, thanks. Yeah, anytime. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Today, we launch a series of stories that explore the impact of the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic on San Diego's performing artists. It may come as no surprise that according to the San Diego Arts and Culture Citywide Impact Report, both the number of performance events and the number of people who attended went down last year. But what about the pandemic's impact on the performers themselves? Producers Emmeline Mohebi and Julia Dixon-Evans have gathered stories from some of the individuals directly affected. We begin with classical performance, the world of choral, dance, opera, and instrumental music. Around the same time that Governor Newsom issued the first stay-at-home order, the San Diego Gay Men's Chorus was dealing with a small outbreak of their own. I asked the choir's executive director, Jeff Heine, about their experience and whether they had a sense of how the choir would weather the pandemic. At the time, you know, when we went into lockdown back in March of 2020, I think everyone kind of thought this was going to be a temporary thing. You know, we were all eager and willing to go through the protocols that had been recommended to us that we were hearing on the news, what we had to do to shut down, but thinking that this would be a very, very short term, you know, less than a month that we'd all be back to work. And I don't think we really understood the impact until after a couple of months. And then it did become a concern about uh, what do you do when your very artistic product is a super spreader event, you know, with our singers performing together, being in an audience, And now that it is two years later, what challenges are sticking around? 
you know, now that we're into two years of this uh, pandemic, I think the challenge is for us right now, and I don't know if it's a challenge or, or an opportunity, I would like to look at it as an opportunity that we now have a chance to rebuild after the long hiatus of, uh, of the pandemic shutdown of not only just rebuilding, but looking at what we've done, looking at how our organization is run, looking at the shows that we produce, and is this Finally, that opportunity of given time where we can actually take a look at uh, our future and see if we can emerge, you know, in other words, like what's the new normal for us as we emerge from this, what does our new normal look like? And that doesn't have to be uh, a challenge. It can actually be a very exciting thing. I think for me, how I would define our new normal or, you know, rebuilding to a new normal is looking at the performances that we do. What can we do to maintain this virtual um, component that, we've all had to learn the hard way to manage and to produce. After hearing from the San Diego Gay Men's Chorus, we wondered what was it really like as a performer during these last two years as the evolving pandemic changed their ability to work. We talked with several other performers from San Diego, starting with the opera. I'm Sarah Nicole Carter. I'm a mezzo-soprano. I sing with San Diego Opera, and I'm the co-founder and artistic director of the FF Collective. Your body is your instrument, right? So just like dance, of course, you know, your body is your instrument. So if you get sick, you don't make money. And our contract structure is built like that. So you get paid by stepping a foot onto the stage. You don't get paid for the six months you take to learn a role. You don't get paid for the weeks of rehearsal beforehand. You get paid when your foot touches the stage. So when something like a pandemic happens globally and you're not allowed to open your mouth, really, and then you're classified as a super spreader because you're an opera singer and then you're told your job isn't essential. That's a lot of blows all to take at once. Most of the people in my industry who were working full time as opera singers, that just went away for two years. So the opera industry is now undergoing a lot of changes because a lot of singers have found other careers that they found as fulfilling or more financially stable. But the biggest takeaways for me from the pandemic were the industry is going to have to change in some ways to better serve its artists. Singing in a mask has been a really interesting challenge. I think different singers react to it in different ways, depending on their technique. I don't love it. Initially, when we had the cloth masks, a lot of times you'd breathe them into your face which is why singing masks became a thing. You didn't really have the ability to open your mouth and jaw freely and move freely. There, there were plenty of times where I would like literally suck mask into my mouth while we were singing when I was taking inhalation. So a lot of people started developing these singer's masks. Those allow for you to do free jaw, face, anything you need to do with your body to actually do our job. But there's also a huge difference in what the audience is hearing when it's a masked singer or a masked chorus. Ballet dancers may not need to sing through special masks, but like an opera singer, their bodies are their instrument and their livelihood. I am Stephanie Majorano, and I am a ballerina with the San Diego Ballet Company. The last two years have kind of been a blur. I almost don't remember what it was like before we had these two years. I mean, for as long as I can remember since I was like 11, I was going to dance studios every day, having performances every couple months. And I really took it for granted because I feel like, you know, that's just the life of a dancer. You get up, you go to the studio, you take class, you rehearse, and then you go into a theater on stage and you perform. So when that was all taken away from us so quickly, it was kind of um, a super surreal 
experience. Cause as dancers, how do we stay in shape? You need enough space to, you know, kick your leg in the air, to jump, to turn. And, you know, a piano player can still play their piano in their home. A singer can still sing, but a dancer, especially a ballerina, they need somewhere to wear their point shoes. They need to keep training and keep dancing. Otherwise you lose it. And it was really sad because the first year of the pandemic, I saw so many students and professionals leave ballet completely quit because they couldn't take the thought of trying to get back into shape. But what I was surprised about was how resilient I was and the dancers that I know were. We immediately got to work trying to find ways to find classes online. It was hard not performing. It was hard not being in a theater and stopping and like thinking about all these things. It gave me like a, a new perspective on what's so important about having an audience gather and and for me to share this passion that I have. One of the things we heard from performing artists over the last two years is that part of how they make ends meet is through teaching lessons. And for some, teaching is their primary passion. And when you're used to physically sharing space with your students, a lot gets lost in the ether. Carol Seafelt is a piano teacher and co-founder of the San Diego Music Academy. So all of us pretty much had to improvise overnight with the lesson equipment set up, um, maybe change the lesson focus a little bit. So we did initially experience a slight drop in the enrollment, um, I remember correctly, and it was a variety of reasons. And some families, parents very sadly lost their jobs and they don't have that income anymore. And also um, a lot of students have now increased screen time. So teaching on Zoom, I would say definitely had disadvantages, but also perks as well. So um, for a regular Zoom lesson, depending on the camera angle, um, for my own lesson especially, and the quality of the sound, if they if the students were on a computer or a phone does make a big difference. It could be really hard to hear the lower and the higher pitches, and it's almost impossible to tell the balance between the hands. Also for beginners, I think it was um, definitely a challenge because we were not able to do any posture corrections for young beginners, and they they mainly depend on the teacher physically um, being there for the guidance. And I'm a piano teacher, so so that's an area I can speak for, but I also know for other instruments like string players, there is that posture as well. There's the tuning. Um, you sh- a lot of teachers tune for their young students. For a woodwind instrument, it would be, you know, how the joints align and, and things like that. So that's definitely a challenge. Now that we see things opening up, we, we do see an uh, increase with people turning to music, especially during the time of change. Tomorrow in part two of this series, we look at the way the past two years of the coronavirus pandemic have impacted the theater. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.